Welcome to Troubleshooting Innovation, a commercial baking podcast. Sponsored by Reading Bakery Systems, RBS, the world's leading manufacturer of automated systems for baked snack production, continuous mixing, and oven profiling. I'm your host, Joni Spencer, Editor-in-Chief for the Commercial Baking Media Group, and I'm speaking with industry expert Dave Vanlar as we unpack all the pain points that come with innovation and product development and discover new ways to overcome them. In this episode, we will be discussing a bakery trends overview, and then we'll take a 30,000 foot look at product innovation from concept to store shelves. Dave, thanks so much for talking to me today. Good morning, Joni. So listen, your experience in the baking industry, it spans decades. It includes roles in production, engineering, packaging, QA, marketing, and executive roles. I feel like you're a little bit like that farmer's insurance commercial where they say, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. (laughs) (laughs) And I have some scars to show that also. (laughs) So you have seen a thing or two, Dave. So with all that perspective, how would you describe the baking industry today? Well, the word disruptive was used significantly before uh, COVID hit. And we were certainly forced into this period of disruptive innovation. Um, Even the futurists, I don't think, could have predicted uh, a pandemic bringing us into this. We were forced to rethink the entire process. Um, Labor is even more scarce now. Uh, Employees are paid more. Uh, They call it a stimulus, I guess, to stay home than they make it work. Uh, They're afraid to go out. One thing I hear regularly, too, is from suppliers the, uh, they can't go into the bakeries. So it's really changed the way they do business. Um, we miss the trade shows, obviously, but when suppliers can't go in and show their latest innovations, it makes it difficult for them to work with the bakers to help them move in a new direction. So, And the supply chain is definitely affected. There's no question that uh, home deliveries are a, a thing of not of the future. They're, uh, they're here today and to stay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we look at product trends, I kind of think of food in comparison to fashion when it comes to trends in that things can tend to be a little bit cyclical. So we've got to be disruptive now, right? What are the challenges with innovating new products and coming up with something that's the next big thing if the trends are cyclical? How can they come up with something new without sort of rehashing what's already been done? That's the question that's debated in boardrooms and in marketing meetings and in plants regularly, um, obviously. And cyclical implies that things come back, obviously. Um, So uh, we have seen some things come back. We have seen things new. We've seen things like line extensions. Um, During my contract manufacturing days, we saw candy manufacturers uh, making indulgent cookies. We saw big brand icons taking those brands into new type of concepts from a cookie, a cracker to a bar, for instance. So we've we've always seen that uh, development going on. The biggest thing I think that the innovators look at are certainly consumer trends um, and the science behind that. We can't go just on the emotion of the consumer trends, but we need to get backed by, be backed by science when we do that. So, and science continues to reveal new things to us and also new ways to take the same ingredients and do something with that. Um, 
you know, we see ancient grains being used more, whole grains being used more. We see uh, protein bars and health bars. Um, a lot of this comes out of uh, kitchens. Uh, people have, we've seen major companies buy that uh, innovation rather than try to develop it internally. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, and we talked about that during EBA and how the the smaller companies have that ability to innovate and be super nimble where the larger companies don't really have that option, but they do have the ability to invest in those innovators, right? Absolutely. And that's, and they have the ability to invest to take it to the next level. And that's what we have typically seen uh, in the contract manufacturing world. Um, some companies think a $100,000 business is a good business. Uh, the large brands obviously think in 10 millions of dollars of sales before they'll go into it. So, uh, and to get to that level, it takes significant capex uh, expenditures. Um, it takes significant resources to bring it to that level. So innovation is a wonderful thing, and it's at, right now it's the key to survival, isn't it? I, I, I believe it is. The, um, the brands we've seen flat to, uh, to slightly decreasing volumes and sales, um, we've seen a lot happening in the new markets. So even the old brands need a good facelift once in a while. <laughs> right, right. So with that innovation, there are a lot of moving parts, as I know you know. So in this episode, I'd really love to just sort of take that broad view and look at what it takes to get a product from concept to the store shelves. I'm super excited because I think over the course of this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into several aspects of this. But today, um, can you just kind of walk me through what those moving parts look like? Absolutely, Joni. We we talked a little bit about the small companies being nimble and uh, getting into things quickly. But for the big companies, the life cycle of a product is probably well over two years from the time the idea is uh, discussed at a corporate level and it's in production at a plant level. And there are many, many things involved with that, obviously. Uh, the first being, what is that new product? Uh, what do we uh, take this to? Is it non-GMO? Is it protein? Is it a combination of a lot of those things? And then, obviously, R&D has to develop that product. So product development comes up with a product um, that matches uh, marketing's needs. Uh, and then we start talking about production requirements. Um, that is what makes uh, so many contract manufacturers successful. These new products uh, don't fit the, either the uh, production uh, capabilities of existing uh, plants or the uh, the uh, uh, the capex that it's required so it'll start on a smaller level so that has to start when you look at a year uh, sometimes even more from the time you talk about equipment until the time it's installed and set up um, while that's happening packaging needs to be designed um, equipment needs to be ordered or modified as it uh, as it should be uh, we do tests in the lab, we do tests in the plant, and then we can't forget we've got a distribution and logistics uh, uh, cycle to take care of. So by the time we get ready for a test market, uh, you know, could be a couple of years have gone by and a lot of different disciplines involved. So what's been happening in the past couple of years with this immediacy that consumers are expecting? Um, if if you're looking at a process that takes two years, what happens when either 
consumer preferences shift quickly and the interest is either no longer there or the interest is in something totally different or say something like a pandemic hits and everything is just thrown out of whack. How do R&D departments and, and the other moving parts in the process, how can they adjust and, and accommodate those changes? They're continuing, and the R&D people continue to look at um, new ingredients, for instance, uh, when uh, when ingredients are changed, as in some flours, uh, and they're processed differently. We have changes in fats and oils. Uh, we have other changes in uh, new ingredients that can be incorporated, and that always brings with it a challenge in the manufacturing area, so that needs to be considered also. Um, bringing those parts together is probably the most difficult uh, thing in the whole process uh, because a good idea in the lab may not be something that can be produced in the plant. Um, nimbleness is not identified with bigness normally. So, you know, the big companies uh, can't be that nimble. Uh, that's why we, I was involved with one particular project that a major, uh, major marketing company, sales and marketing company, um, wanted to get a product out. They quoted internally you know, they quoted, I think, 10 million in capital and two and a half years. You know, they came to us and said, we'll give you a million in capital in six months. Can you do it? And, uh, you know, we, we came close. We couldn't do it that quickly. But uh, the expectations on us were far more stringent than they were uh, on their own because they are so big and because they have their iconic brands already running. Uh, you can't disrupt what's making what's paying the bills today. Right. So we, you know, contract manufacturers are a huge link in that for the major companies. So what do you think is going to be the state of contract manufacturing moving into the future with innovation being so critical these days? Is this going to bring new opportunities for the co-manufacturers? Is it going to make life harder for them? What's it going to look like on that side? I think they'll always play a key role uh, in especially in new products and in, in some other ones there. I have always firmly believed and, and seen it executed that the, the major companies or sales and marketing companies, you know, with the distribution, um, look at when they've taken a smaller company and introduced it the brand into theirs, they've folded it right in and uh, and made it a huge success. So the manufacturing is somewhat secondary to getting the name out there, to getting the distribution out. Um, the biggest thing that contract manufacturers have done in the past several years is to raise the standards of uh, quality, of uh, food safety, and actually more is demanded of them than ever in the past. So I think they'll continue to play a huge role because decisions can be made a lot faster and, and executed more quickly. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I was talking to uh, one contract manufacturer who really, uh, he's the president of the company and he was really driving the business strategy and he placed a heavy emphasis on contract manufacturing for the incubator companies and the and the innovators and so he didn't want to contract manufacturer to crank out the same old stuff he wanted to get into the sandbox with those innovators so do you have any thoughts on what those opportunities look like well 
you remind that reminds me of, of going to uh, one of the major companies and uh, at a food show, if you will. But we were asked to come in and show off products, and I think there were about thirty or forty uh, suppliers in there, all the way from ingredient suppliers to bakers. And we were given a list of things to try to develop for them and show. Um, and then they marched their marketing, sales, and R&D people through that one-day show. So they really counted on us to bring ideas to them. Um, and then with that was the expectation we, that we would uh, develop them very quickly. So I think that contract manufacturers need to keep bringing new ideas to these companies, to their customers, and they do that. Uh, another reason that I feel that contract manufacturing is uh, is, is here to stay and is going to continue to grow is the uh, the investments that are being made from private equity into the uh, uh, contract manufacturing area. That interest continues and it will probably still continue because they believe the returns are good. Troubleshooting Innovation is brought to you by Reading Bakery Systems, RBS, your trusted partner for innovative bakery and snack solutions. For more than a century, RBS has delivered systems that help make its customers successful. An inherent drive for excellence and a thoughtful, research-based approach make RBS the partner you'll need to ensure your product success. To keep you informed, RBS now offers the Snack Seminar Series. These free online seminars showcase the latest innovations in processing technology and new snack development. RBS, successful snacks start here. Learn more at readingbakery.com. Dave, I have another question for you. And the next couple of questions, I think, will kind of tease out what we're going to take deeper dives into over the course of this podcast. But this one I'm always curious about when it comes to product development, what is the secret to harmony between R&D, marketing and operations? Because everybody has in general the same common goal, but everybody also has um, different immediate goals and different ideas of how to reach that overarching goal of success in the marketplace. So do you have any thoughts on how they can play nice together? Well, Joni, that question implies that they don't play nicely together today. And that's an excellent observation because that is a, a very difficult uh, arena in which to play. Uh, I was fortunate enough to do that for several years. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like putting my uh, referee shirt on every day that I went to work. Uh, everybody has an agenda. Everybody has a way they want to do it. And it's a huge uh, undertaking to bring all those moving parts together. Um, it takes a strong project manager. Uh, and that project manager needs to know the objective, uh, needs to know what the company is trying to get with that product, uh, because a lot of the disciplines involved with it will uh, come up with their own ideas, which may be great ideas, but they don't lead to the specific goal that the company is trying to get for that product. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's to save money in the process. Sometimes it's to make life easier. Sometimes it's to do more with what they already have, but if that's not the goal of the new product, then then they need to change their focus to meet that goal. 
So then any sort of urgency with speed to market, does that change that dynamic? Absolutely. These R&D, they will work with a product until they feel very, very good about it. And and they're known for continuing to tweak a product uh, until they've gotten it perfect. The difficulty comes there in that obviously when you get to the plant, uh, the conditions are different than they were in the lab. So, you know, that's always an issue. You can't make it perfect in the lab and then expect the same results in the plant. So, you know, that transition is probably one of the biggest ones that I've been involved with uh, from both the uh, corporate side and the plant side to take a product and to execute it in the plant. Um, the turnover with that or the handoff is always a, 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 a critical area. And most big companies understand that. Uh, one company would do a 15-shift review and that they would know that the process is not going to settle down until at least 15 shifts are run. Uh, they may have a million dollars in there for startup costs. Oh. Uh, other companies expect it perfect on day one, and that's just not going to happen. Has it ever happened? No. <laughs> We've come close. We've come very close. Um, but um, yeah, there's always a cost to uh, developing a product in the plant. My next question is something, something that you said to me once in talking about innovation, and that is you were sort of reminiscing on the, the heartache that comes with innovation. What are the most common pain points when it comes to product innovation? Without question, it's the communication and the ability to work together between all the disciplines. Uh, give you an example. A, a major food company had us do a, a contract manufacturing job for them. They had developed it. They gave us the product. They gave us a package of the product and said, this is exactly what we want you to make. So we went to the equipment people and said, this is the product that they're going to make. We need to specify the equipment to that. And they love that because there's nothing better than to have the product in hand and develop the equipment to do that. Mm -hmm. So they developed the uh, product handling equipment. It was to uh, move cookies into a wrapper, into several wrappers actually. And uh, we went down that road. They had it developed. And I'll never forget the phone call I got from that vendor when the new samples arrived. And the new samples were significantly different than the ones we were given in the beginning uh, because R&D continued to tweak. Marketing continued to change it after they had given us, quote, the perfect sample. And the phone call was basically, he said, it, my, my uh, equipment won't work. It, it won't work with the new cookie that you've given me. Uh, you know, quite quite a shock. And I said, well, what will it take? He said, well, you know, about $50,000 per machine to add this certain piece to it. And I said, well, I guess we have to do it. So he did it um, and it did work. But, you know, that was a, a, quite a surprise when we get a product that's different than what we all planned on. Yeah. And so at what point do you bring the equipment manufacturers into the product development? I have done it almost in the beginning. And that's where most companies, most uh, bakers have people they've worked with regularly. And one of the first things I do is bring uh, the uh, ingredient people and bring the uh, packaging people and the equipment people into the process early on. 
uh, even if it's a concept, we, we give them the concept and then we think about, now how can we use our equipment to make that product for this new customer? Um, we, we took, for instance, we took a candy manufacturer, got into the cookie business, and uh, we did one part of it real well. They did the other part real well. And to bring them together, it took expertise from both companies. Um, the equipment had to be modified significant, significantly to do that, but it was very successful because we were all involved in the process as it, as it proceeded. Do you think it's a common misconception to assume that you should bring the ingredient suppliers in earlier in the process than the equipment suppliers? Well, actually, the, the ingredient suppliers are going to be involved very early because they're calling on the R&D people regularly. They are showing them new ingredients. They are they're looking for ways to use existing ingredients, possibly in a new way. So the ingredient folks are, are in well ahead on the process. Most of the time, it's the equipment that gets ignored as they're going through the process. Right. So do you think that bakers need to think about bringing those equipment suppliers in earlier to have those conversations with the ingredient suppliers? There's no question. There's absolutely no question. I was involved with a project early on that taught me that uh, there was a six-pack bar that we were making in a plant. And uh, marketing and sales wanted to make that a 12-pack in addition to the six-pack bar. Well, they had designed a package that was uh, uh, incredibly inefficient and, um, uh, and it would not work on the equipment we had. And they were, they were in corporate. They were putting together plans to buy new equipment. The, the plant manager I was working for at the time got in the office and he started with a, a scissors and cardboard and he made up a 12-pack uh, design that he thought would work on the equipment. And he sent that uh, to corporate and they said, wow, can you do that? And he said, well, absolutely. That's the way we should do it. So, you know, without involving the plant, without involving the, the uh, equipment people, they were going off in a direction that was going to be difficult to, uh, to manage. Sometimes even early in the process, if, if we say, if you turn the bar this way instead of that way, it's going to make it a lot easier. Sometimes that's acceptable. Sometimes it's not. But the sooner, the sooner that all disciplines are involved in the process, the better. There's no question about that in my mind. Probably the last thing I want to ask you is: is you used this word earlier, and it's one that I've I've heard you use uh, several times, and that is the bleeding edge of innovation. Um, there's the leading edge of innovation and the bleeding edge of innovation. So can you talk about what the difference between leading edge and bleeding edge is? Innovating in ways that we have somewhat played before, um, possibly taking different flowers and making different products. Um, the, the bleeding edge that I've seen is whole new concepts. Um, things that are really out there that have not been done before. And a great idea uh, turned out to be great products, but the learning curve was huge on them. Um, it hadn't been done before, and the concepts were uh, were pulled together were just different, and, and nobody had done it before. So bringing it to uh, to market was was extremely difficult. Uh, we were in new areas that no one had been before. What do you think the future of that is going to look like? Do you think there's going to be more of that? With the iconic brands holding the uh, the line, paying the light bills for the companies, 
that are out there today, the major companies, it's, it's going to take new ideas, new concepts. You know, we've seen uh, new ideas in bars, for instance, the, the uh, bar market has exploded uh, over the past 10 years yeah. uh, and a new concept, even into the non-baked bar product. So, and things, lines start to blur when we talk about that. Is it a cookie? Is it a bar? Is it a cracker? You know, wh what exactly is it? Um, big companies also try to stretch that brand um, and without naming any names, but, you know, let's say they have a chocolate chip cookie with a great brand recognition and they try to make a bar from that or they try to make a cracker from that, that may not go well with the consumer. They may not recognize that, uh, you know, XYZ chocolate chip uh, is associated with crackers. Uh, and some of the companies have, you know, made that choice in the past and it really has not held up. So do you think that the brand recognition is going to be enough to support the innovation or does the innovation have to be as strong as the brand in order for it to work in the marketplace? I think the innovation needs to be as strong as that brand we have seen. And I was involved with, for instance, again, a major uh, cookie company in an extension where they took a, an iconic brand and moved it into a, uh, a different arena into a soft cookie type arena. Um, and it, it, was the biggest introduction. I mean, it was touted as the biggest introduction, the most successful introduction for them in five years. Um, we got awards for it. Uh, they were looking at the second line to make that product. Uh, it lasted about a year and a half and the consumer recognition was just not there. Um, the other thing that happened with that, and we don't talk about often and we don't see the effects of it, is the distribution logistics internally. Uh, we were involved with a product at one time, again, a major company, but they couldn't decide who it belonged to. Did it belong to the food service people? Did it belong to the DSD people? Did it belong here? Did it belong on the route trucks? Where did it belong? And there was so much uh, disconnection inside that the product just dropped. So it had nothing to do with product, the brand, the innovation. It had to do with internal forces that just it just fell apart. So I'm going to, I keep telling you that it's my last question, but I'm going to ask you one more. In all of your experience, what would you say when it comes to product innovation, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned that you would want new bakers to be aware of? Don't be afraid of innovation. Attack it like you would anything else. Um, we have to innovate. We've talked about that, and we know we have to. Uh, and don't be afraid to, uh, to experiment, to go beyond what you think you can do. Just uh, set a higher goal for yourself than you've ever done before. Um, think way out of the box. And we've been forced to do that with the disruption that we've seen. But, um, you know, there are lots of possibilities uh, we've seen. We've seen cookies and crackers with cereal in them. We've seen all kinds of other things. So um, it may sound like a silly idea to you at the time, but uh, if you make a product with it and introduce it to someone, uh, they may take it in one shape or, or another. I'm really excited for the next five episodes that we have in this podcast, Dave, because we're going to dig deep into what it takes 
to make that handoff smooth from the lab to the line and going from R&D to operations. We're going to talk about the knowledge transfer from the old school bakers to the incoming generation. We're going to really tap into your expertise on achieving what you can't see when you're trying to troubleshoot the baking curve and look at data collection and how we can use that to um, identify trending information and do what's best for the product and the equipment. And then I'm also really excited that our last episode is going to be audience questions. So I'm encouraging all of the listeners to send an email to info at avantfoodmedia.com to ask you some questions that you can address in our final episode. So Dave, I'm really excited for this series and I thank you for your time and your expertise and your incredible insight. Joni, thank you for asking. Thank you for listening to the Troubleshooting Innovation Podcast and a special thank you to our sponsor, Reading Bakery Systems. For more information on RBS and its industry-leading baked snack solutions, visit ReadingBakery.com.